0: It is always such a joy to be with you all. I count it a great privilege always to open up the Word of God, and particularly from this pulpit and with you all here. And it is always so necessary for us to keep our minds renewed and our eyes fixed upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And so to that end, the question always is, what do you preach? What is What would serve the congregation, the people of God most to edify? What would bring great, great honor to our Savior? And in that quest to find that passage that would accomplish those outcomes, I have landed in Daniel chapter 7. Turn there with me in your Bibles. Daniel 7. And in the first 14 verses, Daniel 7 lays out a vision, lays out a dream, which displays with majestic splendor the moment we've all been waiting for. The moment we've all been waiting for. There are lots of occasions, lots of circumstances, lots of times and moments that we supposedly wait for. For a young person, sometimes that moment is Christmas or birthday. As they grow older, it could be their driver's license. That's the moment that they are waiting for. It could be graduation or a vacation. And as they grow even older, we long for promotion or receiving an honor. That could be the moment we are waiting for or retirement. For some of you here, the moment you are waiting for Is lunch. (laughs) There are lots of moments that we wait for, and what characterizes such a moment is that it captivates us. It compels us. It is central in our lives. All we can think about is that moment. In that way, it controls us because our expectations and our anticipation drive our affections and our thoughts and our actions. We are driven by the moment that we are waiting for. And yes, to be sure, there are a lot of moments that we label as such, but the argument that I'd like to pose from the scriptures this morning is that Daniel 7 is the one. It is the one moment. And that certainly was Daniel's argument. You can see that in the flow of the book of Daniel. If there is one anthem, one theme of the book of Daniel, it is that God still reigns that God still is sovereign. Even though Israel was being sent into exile far from their homeland, even though it appeared in that moment that Babylon had conquered them, even though it appeared in that moment that God uh, perhaps had lost, the book of Daniel says with direct clarity that God still reigns. He still is sovereign. And every passage and every story and every chapter of the book is a protracted proof to that end. In the very first verse of Daniel, when it seems like Babylon had captured Israel, God shows, I am sovereign. I still reign in your captivity. The opening words of Daniel one do not say that Babylon conquered Israel. Rather, it says this, the Lord gave Israel over God is still sovereign. God is not just sovereign over Israel's captivity. He is sovereign among Israel's captives. We are very familiar with what happens to young Daniel and his friends subjected to an attempted brainwashing program by Nebuchadnezzar who tried to conform them to Babylon and get them to bow the knee. But instead of bowing the knee, Daniel and his friends are resilient, supported by the sovereignty of God. And instead of having to compromise, the king of Babylon has to compromise on his program to them our God is still sovereign. Our God is still sovereign in Daniel chapter 2, where Nebuchadnezzar thinks he is so great and mighty because he has a massive military that overtook the nation of Israel. And God says, you may have an army that you think is so powerful, I can best you with one dream. With one dream. And you are demoralized, and you nearly go insane to figure out that one Dream. God is still sovereign. And in that plan of his sovereignty that he reveals to Nebuchadnezzar a dream and Daniel a dream that unveils the destiny of the world. God is sovereign and he has a plan. And though Nebuchadnezzar tries to oppose that plan, Daniel chapter three, he makes a statue all of gold symbolizing himself as if he is the end destiny of the world. God so- shows him, no, you are not sovereign. That is why Daniel's friends in the fiery furnace survive, and the statue that Nebuchadnezzar thought was so mighty is nothing compared to the Almighty God. And Nebuchadnezzar not only tries to oppose the plan of God, but God himself in Daniel chapter 4, and this is what God does. God turns Nebuchadnezzar into an animal. He eats grass. Who is the mighty one now? Not the king of Babylon. He's just an animal were it not for God. God is totally sovereign. His plan totally stands. And therefore, in Daniel 5, that plan moves forward as one nation, Babylon, goes to Medo-Persia, another nation exactly as And in Daniel chapter 6, God is still sovereign because even though there is a new kingdom, presumably more mighty than the previous one, God is still sovereign because he reigns in Daniel's life, in his life of no compromise, in his life of conviction, and in the lion's den God is still sovereign over and over and over and over again. God continues to demonstrate his sovereignty. God shows that his plan will always stand and cannot be stopped. And this moves through the book, chapters one, two, three, four, five, six, and now seven is the culmination of that. This is the moment we are all waiting for. God has an agenda at hand. And there's another way to see this though. Because some of you here might be saying, I read Daniel 7. It's a vision. It's a prophecy. It's got symbolism. It's confusing. And it's about this dreaded word, eschatology. Everyone just fights about that. It's so confusing. I don't like it. What's the practical benefit of eschatology anyways? It just seems like people just want to make charts. That's all they do. What can you? What can eschatology help a person at all? Let me put it this way. You can never forget the historical fact that Daniel was exiled at a very young age. Some people say as young as 12 or 13, but if you do some biography on Daniel and understand age limitations at that time and such, he could have been exiled as young as 8. At that moment, he never saw his home again for the rest of his life. And he lived at least 80 years, 80 years in exile. Away from home, away from family, away from culture. He lived in a foreign land. Regime changes, king changes, political changes. And his life was constantly threatened. From the moment he got there, his life was under tremendous pressure to capitulate to the demands of Babylon Sometimes we say, oh man, they're just throwing me to the lions. Daniel was thrown to the lions. He had it for real. His life was always in peril. And here's what's so amazing. Eighty years. Eighty years like that. He never once broke. He never once compromised. He always endured. Though even... His own life beyond the line so often, he just kept pressing on. And he never lost hope. And he never lost fervency to Christ. And we might say to Daniel, How did you do that? How how would you what empowered such perseverance? What caused and drove such endurance that you could do that? You know the book of Daniel is not written in chronological order, it is written in topical order. And its ordering reflects the topics under inspiration that Daniel wanted to give. And what is central to Daniel, he put central in this book. And that is Daniel chapter 7. Daniel's message to us is Do you want to understand how you survive? Do you want to understand how you persevere to the end? Do you want to understand how you endure? Do you want to understand how you can be resilient and you will not break and your heart will always have deep affections for the Lord Jesus Christ and undying loyalty to him, Daniel 7. That is the moment Daniel was waiting for. And that is the moment we wait for. And so our task this morning is to investigate and to delve deep into three glories of this moment. Three glories of this moment in Daniel 7, 1 through 14 that help prove and establish once again that this is the moment we are waiting for and unveil its spectacular stature. But most of all, to instill in our heart endurance and hope and perspective about the Lord Jesus Christ, about the sovereignty of God, about the glory that is to come so that like Daniel, we too will persevere to the end. And with that in mind, let us talk about that first glory presented to us in the first eight verses of Daniel 7. This is the moment history has been waiting for. This is the moment history has been waiting for. That's what the first eight verses establish. From very, the first verse already has set up this truth has set up this vision as the vision par excellence. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions. Notice he saw a dream. This is going to be dramatic. This is going to be epic. This is going to be symbolic and descriptive and Compelling, But it's not just a dream, it's a vision. A vision that has divine insight, giving you uh, the ability to see what you could normally never see on your own. This is divine revelation and truth, and it's not just that he saw a dream, it's not just that he saw a dream and a vision. Daniel, the text says, saw a dream and visions. Plural. There is so much divine truth in this text. There is so much revelation. There is so much insight. It cannot be contained to a singular vision. It is vision upon vision upon vision upon vision. It is visions. Plural. And he saw these visions in his head as he lay on his bed, wording taken from Daniel chapter 2, showing that this vision is the parallel and the complement and the completion of all that Daniel has been expounding, all that he has beheld, all that he has witnessed. That is the nature of this vision. And it is so culminative, so complete, so compelling. Notice the next part of verse 1, that he wrote the dream down immediately after he woke up to record every single detail because it's so important. And on top of that, he didn't want us to get lost in all those details. He made sure, because this is a vision, divine insight, that he also wrote the summary of the matter so that we not only understood what was said, but why it said. We understood the things that took place and their meaning and all of their significance. This is the vision of all visions. This is central to the revelation of God. This is the moment we've been waiting for. Now, having said that, The question arises, if this vision is supposed to parallel and complete to be similar to and build upon what was seen in Daniel 2, why not just say it's similar to Daniel 2? In Daniel 2, Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel behold a statue that is made of gold and silver and bronze and iron. And why don't we just have the same thing here? But instead, God gives a completely different description. It's parallel, but it's different. He starts talking about things like this and and see if there's a deja vu to it. He talks about the sky, verse 3. And then he talks about the sea also in verse 3. The air and then the water. And then in verses 4 through 8, he talks about different animals. And then in verses 9 through 14, he talks about the man who rules it all. Where do you have in the Scriptures a passage that talks about the sky, and then the waters, and then animals, and then man? Genesis chapter 1. Daniel 7 is meant to mirror Genesis chapter 1. The end will be like the beginning. In fact, more precisely, the end will answer the question of the beginning. In the beginning, God made the world and he assigned Adam to have dominion over all the earth. And the question posed from that point forward is, who is going to be the final Adam? Who is going to be the one and true Adam? Who is going to be the one that has all authority, all power, all dominion over all creation? And in Daniel 7, you see how history has been traced and trajecting to respond and answer to that question, who is the final ruler of this world? Who is the one who is the destiny of all creation? And so, the world presents four great beast, Four great kings and kingdoms coming up from the sea, as it says in verse 3. And the first of these kings who are vying for that position of the final Adam, the ruler of the entire universe, the fulfillment of the destiny of the world, it says in verse 4, that first one was like a lion. It had the wings of an eagle. I kept looking until its wings were plucked and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man and a heart of a man was given to it. This describes King Nebuchadnezzar. We remember that. He was like an animal, and God restored him. It's really resembling exactly what was said in verse 4. And Nebuchadnezzar is described like a lion. He's the apex predator. He is the one who has all the strength and all the power. He's at the top of the food chain, and he's not just strong. He's also swift. Notice he has wings of an eagle. He has every advantage possible, and you might think, That one who has so much power, so much agility, so nimble, so quick, so mighty, he is the top of the top. That must be the final Adam. That's what the world at first offers. But is it true? And the answer is no. Nebuchadnezzar isn't that. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar learns the hard way that human might is nothing. You know, back in the day, Nebuchadnezzar had a mascot of himself with a lion and wings of an eagle. He thought that that's what symbolized him. If you think that's strange, people even nowadays say, oh, I have a spirit animal. I don't even know what that means. (laughs) And that may sound good or whatever until you become that animal and you realize that's a joke. That's what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. He thought he was so mighty. I got the power of a lion. I got the wings like an eagle. And then God said, I'll make you one of those. And then look what what he was. He was nothing. God exposes. You think human power, you think human might is so strong. You think you're so creative. You think you can formulate something so mighty. And when you actually do it, and when it actually happens, it's laughable. It's laughable. That is human might before God. And not only that. God shows Nebuchadnezzar and through Nebuchadnezzar this, that humanity is so frail and so fragile, and God is everything, and man is completely dependent upon him. Do you know the difference between Nebuchadnezzar, the great king and conqueror of the entire known world, one of the first world super kings and superpowers of the world, and an animal? The grace of God. That's it. That's it. Because there is a fine line between sanity and insanity. And the only one who holds that line is God Almighty. And when he pulls it, you are no different than a donkey. You are no different than an animal that eats grass. That's it. That is because of the sovereign decree of God and that alone. That is the might that God has. And so is Nebuchadnezzar some powerful, powerful being that rivals God, deserves to control the whole earth, Not at all. He just can eat grass. That's all he can do apart from the might of God. So he's nothing. So try number one to answer that question, who's going to control the destiny of the world? That didn't work. So they get another try. Second. Another beast comes up, verse 5, a second one in the likeness of a bear. Bears are ferocious animals, hungry. They are driven by their insatiable appetite, and that's this bear. But notably, it says in verse 5, it was raised up on one side. This recalls exactly what was said in Daniel 2. The part of the statue was made out of silver, interestingly enough, and it had two arms and two shoulders, and here you have two sides to this bear. And all of that indicates that we are looking at a nation that has two parts. And in history, this nation that follows Babylon, the first nation, is the nation called Medo-Persia. Two parts put together exactly like the scriptures said. Medo-Persia wasn't even a conglomerate yet when Daniel was writing, but Daniel knew that it was going to happen. How else do you explain that were it not that this is divine revelation? Likewise, here's something fascinating as well. The book of Daniel, chapter 2, describes the country of Medo-Persia as silver. Medo-Persia becomes the net importer and exporter of silver. The Bible knew Medo-Persia's economy and industry even before it ever happened. That's how precise the Bible is. How else can you explain that? Such accuracy, such precision, other than this has to be from God. Now, this animal, this bear... It's ferocious. It's got an appetite. It's got ambition. It's got drive. Notice the rest of verse 5 says, three ribs were in its mouth. That's the nations of Babylon, Lydia, and Egypt. Medo-Persia goes further than any other nation in domination and exploration than before. It really does have drive. And one might say, especially in our culture, hey, if you have enough drive, if you have enough ambition, if you have enough determination, you can get anything you want done. And in light of that... Maybe this beast, the second one, the ruler of Medo Persia, he's the one that conquers the world. He's the one that destiny revolves around. Maybe that's that. Not the case. How do we know? Notice the ending of verse 5. Thus they said to it, Arise, devour much meat. Who's the they? The they is the host of heaven. The they is the hosts of heaven representing and reiterating the decree of God himself. Here's what you have to think about. Sometimes in life, we see people, we see their drive, we see their determination. Anything they want, they're going to have. Anything they look for, they're going to get. That's how we view them. They're unstoppable. Here's what we have to understand. They will never get one thing more or less than heaven allows. That's it. Heaven dictates earth, not the other way around. That is the truth of the matter. That is the sovereignty of God. And so, is this second beast anything? No. It may have drive, but it does not have autonomy like God does. So, there's a third one, verse 6. After this, I kept looking. Behold, another one like a leopard. Leopards are fast, and this one's even faster because it's got four wings of a bird on its back, so it's super fast. And on top of that, it's four wings, so it can go anywhere at once with the speed it desires without any hindrance. On top of that, this beast also has four heads, which corresponds and mirrors and parallels that third metal in the book of Daniel, chapter 2, a metal of bronze, and this animal, both its symbolism of a leopard with four wings like a bird, its foreheads, and it's made of bronze, all of that goes to the nation of Greece, which is exactly the nation that succeeds Medo-Persia. Fascinatingly enough, Greece's main weaponry was designed from bronze. The Bible knew exactly what would happen before even Greece formulated that, before the technology even existed for it, the Bible knew. Bible knew. How else do you explain that other than divine revelation? And likewise, here the beast has four heads. Why? Why does it have four heads? Because Alexander the Great was the ruler of Greece, and he was fast. He was great. That's why he's called Alexander the Great. And he moves all over the place. And after his death, four generals take over for him. Exactly the four heads that were spoken here. You can't make this up. The Bible has exact and precise prophecy. This is the word of God. And you might think, well, hey, if he's so fast, if he's so nimble, if he's so quick, he always gets everywhere first, he can outmaneuver anybody, then that one has all the advantages. And Alexander the Great, he must have been so great, maybe he's the fulfillment of the destiny of the world. Nope. Verse 6, last phrase, dominion was given to it. Who gave that dominion? God did. God did. Man does not have any strength. Man does not have any power apart from God. That's what we need to remember. And so three strikes, you should be out, but there, the vision keeps going, and we got a fourth one. And this one, verse 7, it says that it was a terrifying beast and fearsome and extraordinarily strong. And it had large iron teeth, corresponding with the fourth metal in Daniel's previous dream a metal of iron. This is the nation of Rome, and Rome leveraged iron a lot. In fact, Rome had a military unit called the Iron Legion. Again, the Bible is prophesying facts and ordaining facts before they happen. And as the nation of Rome, the Bible expresses its exact essence. It devoured other nations as it assimilated to themselves. It crushed those nations so that they could never rebel, and it trampled them down in cruel rule. And it was different than all the other beasts. The previous nations and kings they ruled for a couple hundred years. Rome rules for 1500, and it will have an eschatological manifestation of itself in the future this is a very unusual kingdom speaking of which notice the last phrase of verse 7 it had 10 horns you say when did Rome ever have 10 horns it didn't this is talking about something in the future there will be a future manifestation of Rome and you say wait a minute wait a minute wait a minute. How can we really be sure that that's going to happen that way? That it's going to happen the way the Bible says it, and it's going to be a physical kingdom of the Antichrist to come. How, how do we know that? Okay, let's review. Did uh, what God said about Babylon happen? Yes. Was it a physical nation? Yes. How, how about Medo-Persia? Did that happen exactly the way the Bible said? Yes. Was it a physical nation? Yes. How about Greece? Do we, do we know about a nation of Greece? Can you read about it in a history textbook? Yes, you can. Greece was there. How, how about Rome? Can you visit Rome. Yeah, it's there. It's real. Then if the Bible has nailed with precision every single thing that has happened and every single thing that it has declared comes to pass in a physical, tangible, historical way, what do you think is going to happen in the last 4.5 section of this text? It will happen that way. There will be a nation that arises, a eschatologically revived Rome. It will be like nothing you've ever seen before. It will have ten horns, ten empires, ten kingdoms merged together. It will be a conglomerate like you've never seen, and it will be the ultimate expression of all the nations of the world, and from this ultimate expression rises an ultimate ruler. Notice verse 8. He sees these ten horns, that is Daniel, and behold another horn, a little one, the underdog, comes up amongst them, and three of the horns are pulled up by their roots. One man can overturn political order, political power, the flow of authority, the balance of operations in that future world. One man can do that. Three of them gone. This one then, because he has such power to overturn empires and he has such power to consolidate everything to himself he is the fullest expression of evil the fullest expression of human might and you can see that this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man he is a genius he's the smartest super genius ever and his mouth as it says at the end of the text speaks great boasts the word great is so important in daniel because it's used to characterize man man is called great There's a great statue, a great image. Nebuchadnezzar dreams that he's great. He wants great things. Greatness is used to express all that man has. And this one, this Antichrist, he will possess all the power and might of man that has ever existed in the world and in history forever. That is what he has on earth, all power consolidated into himself. He is the ultimate of the ultimate, the climactic of the climactic. That is him. And the world says, look, we got three tries, and they didn't work for the one that fulfills the destiny. Surely the Antichrist is the one, because he has everything we have. Now think about this, to answer that question, is he the one? Who's the one that raised the Antichrist up? Who's the one right now prophesying about him? God. And that helps you to understand the entire point of this text. Yes, there's a lot of lessons to be learned here. There are lessons that the scripture is real. We see prophecy after prophecy after prophecy that they happen years and years and years before they do. The Bible's talking about the death of Alexander the Great before the guy's even born before his parents are even born. How do you have that unless this is from God? He is real and his word is real and his sovereignty is real. We learn lots of lessons about the sovereignty of God, from this text, that you are nothing without God. We are fragile, and were it not for God, we would be like an animal. We do not dictate to heaven, but heaven dictates to us. And all of that is true because this is not just a fairy tale. This is not just myth. You can go and look at this in history. This is all fact, and that is the nature of the sovereignty of God and the way he operates. It's a fact. It is in this world, not an abstract, spiritual, theoretical world. It is here. It is now. That is the nature of sovereignty. Sometimes we dilute the nature of real and reality. We get so excited about things like artificial intelligence. I've never seen people so excited about something in the name which says, I'm fake. (laughs) And then we get really infatuated with virtual reality which is an oxymoron it's a contradiction if it's real it's not virtual if it's virtual it's not real why do we put these things together it just demonstrates we we don't know what's real this is real this is real god is sovereign he rules the facts of history are dictated by him and reflective of the kind of sovereignty he has he is real and the storyline of scripture that is real That is what is going to take place. That is what is true. And all of that you can learn from the text. But there is a point. Why does God put this vision the way he does because history is answering a question. The question is, who is the final Adam? Who is the one who fulfills the destiny of man? And history is on a quest to find that one and history then is moving kingdom after kingdom after kingdom to a point in history where heaven will overtake earth and earth will challenge and defy heaven saying, we have the Antichrist that must be the one. And heaven says, no he is not. There is no one but the Lord Jesus Christ And there will be a moment when heaven explodes onto earth and every eye on earth stops looking at earth and looks unto heaven to realize that there is only one. There is only one who rules. There is only one who fulfills history. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is where all history is moving to. That is what Daniel saw in his vision. Brothers and sisters, we understand there is a moment All history and all of us are waiting for, and it's not just a moment, it's the man. That's why all of these individuals are kings, like Nebuchadnezzar, like Alexander the Great. And some of you might be wondering, hey, where's the USA in all this? We didn't make the cut. We didn't even get top four. And that should show you, that should show you, we have no conception of the power we are talking about. And even that, though, even that is nothing compared to the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a moment we are all waiting for. All history moves to that moment when all of earth history will be invaded by heaven and heaven's declaration of God's Son. And brothers and sisters, since that is the point, that is God's purpose, do not miss the point. Often we ask all kinds of questions of all kinds of different things. (coughs) And we get distracted by all that is happening around us. If God's point is, all of this is about my son, then we better have the same point. And furthermore... We cannot get lost in the present. Entrapped by our own situations and shortcomings and struggles and obstacles and challenges, there is a moment that we are waiting for. It is not now. It is the future. And we look to that moment, and that is the moment that drives us. There is a moment we are waiting for, and this is it in Daniel 7, and it is about the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where our hearts must be captured. In light of that, this is not just the moment that we are waiting for or even history waits for second point this is the moment in a sense that god the father in a sense that god the father has been waiting for this is the moment in a sense in a sense that god the father has been waiting for let's actually get to the moment shall we verses 9 through 12 look at it with me daniel keeps looking and i love this first line until thrones were set up whose thrones are those Whose thrones are those? Those are our throne. We are the ones seated on that throne. And here is God's message to Daniel. Daniel, I know you've struggled. Daniel, I know you are under threat. Daniel, I know that you have suffered. Daniel, I know you have endured and you have much more to endure. You need to know this. You win. You overcome. Your time on this earth is not all that there is. There will be a moment that you are waiting for. And that moment is where we all win in christ brothers and sisters we have challenges i get it we face difficulties we are in trials but you have to remember there is a moment we are waiting for and it is not the here and now in that moment there will be thrones set up and because of the lord jesus christ we will reign with him we will overcome that's what we have to understand but this moment is not about us Ultimately, it's not. It is about God and His Son. And so the Ancient of Days appears, as it says, and the Ancient of Days was seated. Why is God called the Ancient of Days? Because He's really old? Is that what's going on here? No. The one who transcends history determines history. The one who is over time determines all time. The one who is over the world and transcends everything about it is the one who has the final say. And that he is called the Ancient of Days demonstrates that he has that kind of authority. And that he is called the Ancient of Days demonstrates the truth that this is the moment that defines all of time and all of history. And it is about his son. And so everything about God, that he is the Ancient of Days, and everything about him is geared toward this moment. Notice, in a sense, he's dressed for the occasion. Look at verse 9. His clothing was white like snow. Why? Because this is the moment that he reveals his holiness climactically. And notice also the hair of his head was like pure wool. Why? Because he has eternal transcendence and wisdom. And that wisdom of God is going to resolve everything at this moment. Everything about God is geared for this moment. Everything around God is geared for this moment. Notice his throne, his absolute omnipotent sovereignty was ablaze with fire. It is his fiery wrath that is about to come. And the breath of that judgment is seen in the next phrase of verse 9. Its wheels were a burning fire. God's throne, God's wrath will go anywhere and everywhere, and he will destroy all that is in his path. That is his agenda at this moment. And in verse 10, we see the outcome of it. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. God will flood the world, not with water, but with fire. Before, we know that God flooded and destroyed the entire globe in judgment with water. And he promised never to do that again. So the second time around, he's not going to use water. He'll use fire. And that's what's being discussed here. That's why, in part, I'm a little bit green. I just want the world to be good kindling for when he returns. God will have global judgment He has set everything in motion about him. He has set everything in motion around him. And in this eschatological moment in the future, he has set everything in motion alongside of him. Notice, thousands upon thousands were attending him. All of heaven is summoned to execute the divine will. All of heaven is rallied for this moment. And myriads upon myriads were standing up before him. Sometimes kings, they think they're so great, and presidents, they think they're so formidable because they have 50 or 60 courtiers or whatever. Notice this text, God has myriads upon myriads. All of his glory, all of his splendor, all of his might, everything about him, around him, alongside of him, that he is the ancient of days, is set so that the court will sit, as it says in verse 10, And that word for court is the word Dan, where you get the word Daniel. This is the point of why God named Daniel, Daniel. This is the point of Daniel's book, and this is the point of God in all time in history. God will have the final say, and he will judge, the books will be open, and he will deal with this world definitively. That's why in verse 11, it says, Then I kept looking because of the sound of the great boastful words which the horn was speaking. This horn is lofting itself and exalting itself, trying to say that it is the culmination of all human authority and might and what does God do? He destroys that one. It is no match for God. That beast is destroyed in its person as the beast was killed, and the Antichrist, that future climactic ruler, is defeated, and its power is destroyed as its body and the infrastructure and all the nation and kingdom that it had set up is obliterated, and not only is it punished in its person and in its power it is under god's penalty forever notice the ending of verse 11 because it is given to the burning fire god didn't just defeat the antichrist or will not just defeat the antichrist in the end god will make sure that it is abundant for eternity that that one is completely subjected completely subordinated to the lord jesus christ That is what God does with the culmination, the combination, the climax of all human might and authority. He completely defeats it. And just to show you how defeated that is, verse 12, the rest of the beasts, they pop back up. It's as if that fourth beast never existed and that eschatological kingdom of the Antichrist never took place. They prove that that kingdom and that king is defeated ultimately. Their dominion, though, Was taken away. Why? So that dominion only goes to one. Their existence proves that Christ reigns. Their lack of dominion proves that he also has total sovereignty. And since here, God has aligned everything that he is the ancient of days, everything about him, everything around him, everything alongside of him, all these different things to accomplish his purpose, gathering all of heaven together. It's not just Daniel that's waiting for this moment, in a sense. It's not just history that's waiting, in a sense. It is God the Father who waits for this moment because he has designed everything to be magnifying in this moment. And in this moment, the reason he is all about this time is because this moment is about his son. Why does he raise up the Antichrist? Why does he decimate the Antichrist so? It is to make a point that there is only one. And there can always be only one. And that one is no man, no mortal, as powerful as he might be, take the most powerful one ever in existence, still there is only one. And it is no man. It is the God-man. It is his only son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That is why the Father, in a sense, waits for this moment because it shows off his son. And with that in mind then, This is not just the moment that history waits for. This is not just the moment, in a sense, that the Father waits for. Third of all, this is the moment for his Son. This is the moment for his Son. Verses 13 and 14. Why is Christ the only one? It's simple. He's the only one who is worthy. How do we know that? Because, verse 13, he's the only one who is backed by heaven Daniel sees, and he sees, behold, with the clouds of heaven. Christ is riding in on the clouds of heaven. That not only attests to his swiftness, to his glory, to the fact that he is unstoppable, that attests that all of heaven, all the supernatural world, backs him, there is only one who rallies all of heaven and whom all heaven centralizes around, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's not just heaven, it's also earth. Notice the next phrase of verse 13, one like a son of man was coming. Why is Jesus described like a son of man. The term like shows both similarity and dissimilarity. When you say something is like something, you both mean that it isn't that same thing. It is similar, which means it has both unique things that overlap and things that do not overlap. Yes, of course, Christ incarnate was a man. We understand that. But he's not a man in every sense of our human fallen frailty. He is not a man in that way. He is not a man in failing like the first Adam. He is like the son of man in that he fulfills everything that man was supposed to be. He is the fulfillment of destiny. The whole course of history has asked the question who is the final adam who is the one who will rule the world who is the one who will fulfill creation's destiny it is this one and this one alone because he is everything we are not so that we could be everything we should be in him he is one like a son of man he is supported by heaven he is the one who has dominion over earth and notice this he is the only one who ascended on high he came up to the ancient of days that's what the text says that word came up in aramaic it means reached Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel tried to reach heaven. In Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar tries to reach heaven. In Daniel chapter 3, the statue tries to reach heaven. Daniel 4, Nebuchadnezzar again tries to reach heaven. Everyone tries to reach heaven to have the authority on high. There is only one who does. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one backed by heaven. He is the one Lord over earth. He is the one who reaches heaven and ascends on high. And that is because he is the one who is equal to God the Father. That's why verse 13, last line, he came near before him. There is only one who can do that. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so to him and to him alone, he possesses it all. To him was given dominion, Glory and a kingdom. Christ alone has authority. Christ alone has personal splendor and gravitas. And Christ alone will have the final kingdom. People wonder what is the nature of this kingdom. It is laid out already in context by Daniel seven. Every single kingdom mentioned was a physical, earthly kingdom. Every single kingdom mentioned, and so this one will be too. You say, why does that have to be the case? Because our God. For His Son will win in every single way. And every single thing in this world, natural and supernatural, physical and spiritual, will bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. That is why His kingdom will be the one over this world, and all this world will bow to Him. That is what belongs to Him. And every king in the past... You can even see it in the book of Daniel. They wanted dominion. They wanted glory. They wanted a kingdom. They never got it. They never got it in the end. Why? Because God reserved that place for his son and his son alone. Likewise, every king wanted every people, nation, and tongue to worship them. It's said in Daniel chapter 2. It's said in Daniel chapter 3. It's said in Daniel chapter 4. It's said in Daniel chapter 5 and 6. I think you get the picture. Every king wants that kind of worship, but they couldn't have it. It is reserved for one and only one. Who is that? The Lord Jesus Christ. And so when you have one and only one backed by heaven, ruling earth, ascended on high, equal to the Father the one who possesses it all, and the one who is over all, that one is the only one who is worthy and there is no one else, no one else in all of humanity, all of history, all of creation, all of the world who could ever remotely compare with Him. And that is what is sealed in this moment. That is what we see. And why then are we all about this moment? It's simple. Because we love Christ. And because we love Christ, anything that so honors him, anything that so glorifies him, anything as this moment will, which will physically and spiritually, naturally and supernaturally, historically and from heaven, display that he is the only one. That moment that so worships and glorifies him is everything to us because he is everything to us. That is why this is the moment we are waiting for. Brothers and sisters. As we think about this moment, think about it with me and compare and contrast with the following. Isaiah has a vision, and who does he see? He sees the Lord seated on a throne, just like Daniel 7. They saw the same thing. In Ezekiel chapter 1, Ezekiel sees a vision where there's a throne and it has a wheel within a wheel. This throne has wheels. In Daniel 7, they saw the same thing Paul, on the Damascus Road, recounting that incident in 2 Corinthians 4, says that he saw one like the Son of Man, one in the glory of God, one in the perfect image of God. That's exactly the language of Daniel 7 and Ezekiel 1. They saw the same thing. And John, in the book of Revelation, what does he see? He sees God the Father seated on the throne. And who comes up to him? The Lion, the Lamb, the one who is the Son of Man. He comes up and takes the scroll from him. That's the same thing. They all saw the same thing. It wasn't just the moment. This isn't just the moment that Daniel was waiting for. This isn't just the moment history was waiting for. This is the moment that Isaiah, Ezekiel, Paul, and John are waiting for. This is, in a sense, the moment that God the Father has been waiting for. All of His intention and all of His purpose and all history is here. Therefore, this is the moment we are waiting for. Do not become distracted. With the things of this world. They are moving in a singular direction. And the direction is moving to this moment. This moment which glorifies Christ. Do not become entangled in the things of this world. They will pass. Christ is the only one worthy. And he will last. Do not be discouraged. And when days are tough and trials are dim. We must remember that is not how it ends. There is a moment we are waiting for and in that moment Christ wins and we win in Him. And whenever our hearts are tempted to diminish our love for the Lord Jesus Christ, remember this moment that there is no one else, no one else more glorious, no one else more beautiful, no one else more worthy than the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the moment we are waiting for. Brothers and sisters, Daniel, for 80 years, endured hardship and trial and tribulation How did he do that? Because he fixed his eyes to this moment. In the same way, brothers and sisters, let us persevere to the end. This is the moment we are waiting for, and it will surely come. Shall we pray? Our God and Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for this moment revealed to Daniel long past, but the moment that controls all history, the moment everything is working to and crescendoing towards, the moment of your Son. May our hearts be fixed to that. May our eyes cling and be focused to Christ, who is the only one worthy, backed by heaven, ruling earth, ascended on high, equal to the Father, no one better, no one other than him. And may that drive the perseverance and endurance of our lives as it has done for all the saints and all the prophets before us. Thank you for this revelation. And may we endure well for that moment unto the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.